Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. This is a special anniversary version. Can you actually believe that this is our first anniversary after a really a tumultuous year? The first recording for Beyond the Benchmark was actually on the 12th of March 2020. And at the time it was um, all sorts going on, market disasters of course, we were at the worst time. The Monetary Policy Brigade came along and then obviously we were in the very early stages of the election of uh, Joe Biden. So uh, let's listen in to the very first episode of Beyond the Benchmark. It's uh, an exceptionally volatile day here, 12th of March, 2020. So as I stand right now, the um, Dow is down about 2000 points, down about 8.4% for uh, today and uh, down about 24% for the year to date. Uh, the Euro stocks is down 30%. The FTSE is also down about 30% on a year-to-day basis. Um, so we saw the Fed deliver its first intermeeting cut um, last week since 2008, and that was a 50 basis point cut. We saw the Bank of England do the same this week, and also it reduced the um, counter-cyclical buffer from 1% to 0%, freeing up further liquidity to help uh, the corporate sector. And then in the ECB this week, we have also Very seen- Very important for Joe Biden to be able to win South Carolina. Not only did he win South Carolina, he won South Carolina by about 30%. It was a massive blowout. And if you look at it, it looks it's very rare to see something like this, where a candidate loses in the early states, plants his flag down in another state and says, I'm going to put base everything on this South Carolina vote. And when that South Carolina vote happened, it propelled Biden's momentum across the country. And I'll just give you this interesting stat. The day before the South Carolina vote on February 22nd, Joe Biden was favored to win one state on Super Tuesday. That was Alabama. Joe Biden won 10 states out of the 14 on Super Tuesday. So it truly was an amazing first episode. Uh, probably something we'll never forget. I'm absolutely sure about that. And then as we rolled on through the podcast, we then started to uh, think about the stimulus in terms of both fiscal stimulus. Then it was something that we'd never seen in our careers, which was uh, the... Uh, the collapse in the oil price and obviously um, negative oil prices, uh, which uh, certainly now are a distant memory. And then finally, we did talk to uh, Jason Trennant, who uh, discussed the concept of Tina, i.e. there is no alternative. And so let's hear listen to this as well. Literally two weeks ago, I was saying to members of Congress and their staff, hey, you're going to need to do something really big. You're going to need to do maybe a trillion-dollar bill. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Not only did we do a trillion dollars of stimulus, we've done $1.8 trillion of stimulus, and we did it in two weeks. The reason why the price went to negative was uh, reflecting a mix of uh, fundamental and technical issues. The fundamentals are, of course, that there is a huge oversupply of oil, because of the collapse in demand uh, due to the uh, coronavirus, the crisis, which uh, removed about uh, 30 million barrels a day from, uh, from, from the table out of uh, standard demand of about 100 million barrels a day. Originally, it was actually came from the UK, and it was something that was, I think it was a nickname of Margaret Thatcher, if I'm not mistaken, because <laughs> right. she, would, she would simply say uh, to the Labour Party, 
there is no alternative. You know, every time she would come up with something like privatizing British steel or British <laughs> Airways or something, uh, she would simply say there is no alternative. And she said it so often she got nicknamed that. We, we were the first to, to kind of take it as a market idea um, and say, listen, in a world of financial repression, in a world in which, which uh, central banks are purposely pushing interest rates lower, keeping interest rates uh, lower than they might be, most fiduciaries or a good portion of fiduciaries, pensions, endowments, foundations, really have no other alternative aside from equities. So as there was no alternative, investors then quickly marched on to the technology trend and the amazing working from home developments, the new PCs, the monitors, uh, microphones that we all bought obviously helped within the tech trends. Uh, but alongside there was some other big mega trends that were developing both on the consumer digital side but more importantly on climate and of course electric vehicles and uh, we were lucky enough to talk to Joel and indeed to Pierre. Let's listen in. How, how do you see the sector landscape uh, at, the, at this point in time? One way to think about it is very robust and holding up you know as it was designed to do so and you've seen that by how well the stocks have held up the XLK which is a broad tech ETF, albeit with a heavy dose of Apple, is you know up I don't know five or six percent now uh, with today's move. The business models are proving their worth right now, and you see that in the fundamentals. So, soft, for example. But this is also an environment in which you realize how much these companies have flexible business models. So the reality for Uber, for instance, is that in ride sharing, they can still produce like a break-even contribution margin if their business comes down by eighty percent, because most of their costs are actually. Uh, viable. So these businesses that looked initially as being the most hurt by the crisis end up being the ones who can actually weather the storm the best because they have very flexible uh, business models. Tell us about uh, Tesla and the new Tesla versus the old Tesla. Uh, there will be enormous pent-up demand for these cars. There will be millions of buyers of these cars. And my conviction at the time was based on the fact that Tesla cars will sell as a premium product, so expensive product, so that Tesla can make money and can pay for the, the cost of having a battery in a car. Um, but they would drive trading up demand, very similarly to what the iPhone did. So remember in 2007, the premium market for, for, for mobile phones, so phones selling for more than $600, was like something like, you know, 100 millions. Uh, and the iPhone came in and initial observers were saying, well, the iPhone is too expensive, the addressable market is 100 million phones, uh, it's never going to be a big product. Um, but the reality is that the addressable market of the iPhone today is actually 700 million phones. So people, people saw so much value in these new phones um, that were more expensive to, to, to manufacture that they traded up to it. So people who are usually spending $200 on a phone ended up buying a $600 phone. And so we see the exact same phenomenon happening with Tesla, where people who would not typically buy a premium car, they wouldn't care uh, about a BMW. We also managed to get um, the Future Leaders panelists on the podcast, and we actually were very fortunate to have Tara, uh, Jason, Jay, as well as Nathan, and uh, they talked everything from resilience with Tara to, um, to taking cold shower to Jason Jay talking about ESG and 
most importantly, uh, the green bundle and what that means from an investor's perspective. And then finally with Nathan, it was talking about innovation and uh, certainly what we've seen the last three or four years and since we've had the Future Leaders panelists is that innovation is really quite, quite key. And I have to say that we have oodles of it uh, today within the marketplace. So, uh, so let's listen in. One of the key things that uh, one needs to do to to overcome, mm. for example, the crisis we've just been through. I mean, I think that's really showed up actually during this crisis. Um, because, you know, obviously there's been like a physical threat to all of us, but there's also the challenges of being cooped up indoors, the relationship challenges, the homeschooling, the the lack of boundaries like between work and home life and everything. And so I think it's always about raising from non-conscious to conscious what's actually going on for you. There are some small hacks for things like this, which I think your audience would like. So for example, thermal stress. It's all about stress inoculation. You build up your resilience by withstanding small amounts of stress. And so cold showering, followed by you know warming up in a sauna or warming up in a hot bath, is it's thermal stress. So you basically shock your body by having a freezing cold shower or a dip if you can. And then you demonstrate to your brain that you're able to manage your recovery after that so you can make yourself feel warm again after you've been really cold. The term Green Bundle comes from uh, Magali Delmas, um, who's a professor at University of California, Los Angeles, and has a great book by that title. The sort of overarching thesis is this notion of the Green Bundle, which is that people will preferentially buy more green, broadly defined, socially responsible and environmentally responsible products They'll preferentially buy it and they'll pay a premium, um, but only when it's kind of bundled with some other benefit that they're getting um, with that um, characteristic. So if we think about, um, you know, light bulbs, for example, uh, an LED light bulb is um, better for the environment um, because it uses much less energy to produce the same number of lumens. Um, now the benefit that I'm getting as a user there is not is not just that I'm reducing my carbon footprint It's that I'm saving money on my energy bill for one The trap we fall into just as human beings is that our brains lock on to What we think the solution would be and then we go execute on that solution without first deeply understanding what problem are we trying to solve? What really is the customer need? What's the job to be done for that customer? In all its dimensions, not just what it does, but how does it make the customer feel? How does it make the customer look? And, and the super innovators we study were really good at getting deep on that problem, understanding that problem, whatever the right, you know, in different ways, they use different approaches from Steve Jobs to other innovators, but, the, but it was always built around that core customer need and that was the key to successful innovation because if you solve the real customer need customers will come they will buy it if the uh, coronavirus wasn't enough for us in 2020 um, we also had huge tumult in the uh, political scene as well of course we had the u.s election one of our friends throughout the u.s election process was uh, dan clifton from strategius uh, and then we also had of course brexit and we had a round table with uh, Daniel, Jonathan and Bibiana 
um, and obviously huge implications for the European economies there as well. The S&P 500 has predicted every presidential election winner since 1984, and 87% of the presidential election winners since 1928. So it's not perfect, but if you give me 100 years of data and it's 87% accurate, I'll take it. And the formula here is very simple. If stocks are higher in the three months leading up to the election, then the incumbent party has generally won. And if stocks are lower in that three-month period, the opposition party has won. This has worked every election since 1984. And as you know, the S&P has basically been positive since we started the clock on August 3rd. That would mark the three-month period. Yesterday, uh, that uh, I'm sorry, on Wednesday, that crossed over below the par level and is now down since August 3rd, a sign that the opposition party will win if it stays there. For you, what are the big macro considerations running a UK portfolio at the moment? There are very, very many layers cross currents in the UK equity markets. And so obviously immediately it's all going to be about the negotiations, what what Sterling does and whether we get a deal or not. And that's the very, very short term horizon. Um, but I think, you know, if you if you're thinking about allocating capital um, over you know a multi-year period, which is the way we think about it, um, you really have to look much more broadly and much more globally. Because, as Daniel mentioned, you know, 70% of the, the revenue earned in the UK market is earned every, everywhere else other than the UK. One of the interesting features of uh, 2020, uh, and indeed the COVID-19 crisis, was the uh, was the fact that China was uh, where it started, but they actually uh, had recovered and were probably the strictest in terms of lockdowns. And so we heard from Jeff Lee and Daisy Lee on the developments in China and, and the impact that was having. More recently, we spoke to Chris Chan and maybe tilting a little bit towards the Indian market development. That, that was also quite interesting. And finally, we had Jaywoo from ISI telling us about the path of the Nikkei to 35,000 and how it was going to achieve that. And uh, certainly that was also very interesting. That was in Shenzhen and Shanghai earlier in September. People are having a very normal life there, just like in 2019. Everything is just like before COVID. And they are not worried about COVID at all. This is because there is nothing abnormal around them and nobody around them is showing any symptom or feeling sick for whatever reason. So they all feel very comfortable. And this proves that uh, actually the data from China is real. And for the reasons why China is able to tackle the virus so well, um, I think this is very, very China. And the difference may be hard to imagine for people from, from the West or living in the West. The way they deal with uh, any further new cases. So if they find a group of people get infected in any given city, uh, China would test the whole city's population with no exclusion and then they will know exactly what to do with who. And, and that give, uh, that that's very important because this uh, pandemic is still um, very, still very severe outside of China. So they, as, a, as a standalone uh, country, you can't close border forever. So this gives them the confidence, give the people the confidence and the businesses the confidence that, you know, any further outbreak here and there, small ones will be 
deal with and uh, get rid of within a couple of weeks, which is really, really important. If you look in the, the last 10 years, for example, you know, the, the China versus the India market in, in USD terms, at least, um, it shows, you know, China's outperformed you know, about 70%, which of course is huge. Um, but actually, pretty much all of that 70% has come in the last 18 months. Um, and for the obvious reasons that China just dealt with, with, with COVID significantly better than India, um, didn't have any national lockdowns and whatnot. So it's, it's interesting that actually before you know, COVID hit uh, on a 10-year basis, uh, there wasn't much between the markets in terms of returns. And actually before the credit crisis, if you look back the prior 10 years, um, India outperformed China to a similar degree as, as, as China has in, in, in the last you know, two years, 18 months. Um, so actually, in terms of a you know a longer term stock market return, um, India can be as in- interesting, if not more interesting, um, th- than China. Of course, there's always volatility in any market, um, but compared to China, it's much more consistent because of of of, of the, the 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 less exposure. You know, it's not a command economy. Um, there's more retail banks, so it's much less of an efficient mechanism than monetary policy. Um, so it's a little bit more consistent. I want to keep this really, really simple. The world economy will expand at a robust pace in 2021. And that's the sweet spot for Japanese corporate profits and equities. Um, that's that's really the, the by far the most important driver of the performance in Japan. The last three times uh, we had synchronized global growth. Uh, that would be 2003, 2013 and 2017. In those years, corporate profits were up uh, about 20% on average, and the Nikkei was up about 35% on average. So 35,000 on the Nikkei is just the off of the 35% uh, of 2020's uh, finish. So that's one way to get there. Now, this intuitively, all this makes sense, because if you look at the index constituents, uh, about 75% of the index, whether you look at the Nikkei or the topics, uh, are you know, what we call exporters or global brands. And I would even add that that, that 75% share of the constituents of global brands actually understate revenue and earnings contributions uh, from overseas. Coming closer to the end of our of our journey of our first year of the Beyond the Benchmark podcast, we then um, started to uh, think about 2021, and we had uh, Ed Hyman, the legendary Ed, Ed Hyman from ISI. Uh, telling us about uh, the the, uh, the US economy, the global economy, and most importantly for the stock markets and, and even the fixed income markets, the impact on, on earnings and, and indeed how fast they could recover and uh, ultimately where they could uh, keep on going. More recently, as we've seen the fixed income markets, uh, certainly the rate markets finding a little bit more difficult, uh, we then had Stefan helping, helping us to navigate the inflation story. The third quarter had a big bounce back, uh, which is extremely important to understand. Uh, it bounced back because we opened the economy. Uh, say, housing stopped, uh, auto sales stopped, uh, restaurants stopped, uh, and then they came back to a certain extent. Uh, and you had this, if you annualized it, it had a big rebound. And so that's likely to happen uh, sometime next year when you get the vaccines. 
Now, my dear friend Byron Wien was saying he didn't think people were going to take the vaccine, which is a risk. Uh, but I think, you know, everybody will take it. I think I'll take it. I think he'll take it. And then our friends will see. And then George Clooney will take it. And LeBron James will take it. And Hillary Clinton will take it. I think you'll get quite a few people taking it. But I think, you know, next year uh, could be, a, you know, if I had to pick, I think it could be a barn burner. Stefan, do we have an inflation problem? So I don't think we will, we don't have an inflation problem right now. And I don't think uh, we will have one either. But I think in the next couple of months, there may be many people saying, I, I told you so. I think there will just be sort of a, uh, a return to, pre- to previous uh, inflation rates. I don't think this is the start of something uh, or something new. It's always a problem um, in the real world to distinguish between inflation, which we think of as a continuous and ongoing long-term process in which prices are rising, and price-level shocks that just raise inflation rates or lower inflation rates for 12 months, and then they drop out of the, uh, of the calculation. The latter things, these price-level shocks, are actually not very important. Um, you can just disregard them because they disappear on their own. Their role in, in accounting for swings in inflation is actually very, very large. Most of the movements that we see in inflation are due to price level shocks that are not, uh, that are not dangerous. Um, we are trying to spot uh, sort of changes in the underlying uh, rates of inflation. So that brings us uh, bang up to date. So I was left to say thank you very much for listening to this uh, special anniversary edition of Beyond the Benchmark and for making this podcast so popular. I also want to thank Daniel Murray for... Um, Uh, for deputising for me and I think he's probably the most uh, frequent contributor as well as all the uh, people from uh, from EFG as well um, and then uh, of course all the external guests and speakers we've had some of the the best minds within financial markets over the last 12 months and hopefully we'll have them uh, for going forward and of course uh, Guy Ellis the producer of Beyond the Benchmark who's been uh, my close friend alone in the office uh, taking these podcasts uh, recording these podcasts over the last uh, 12 months so thanks guy as well uh, so uh, we look forward to speaking to you next week mm-hmm.